The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. You'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, eyes wide open, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. On the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Today I'm visiting with Joshua Young, the founder and portfolio manager of Young Capital Management, Previously, Josh served as an analyst at a multi-billion dollar single-family office in Los Angeles. Prior to that, he was an investment analyst at Triton Pacific Capital Partners. He was also a corporate strategy consultant at Mercer Management Consulting and Diamond Cluster. He holds a B.A. in economics from the University of Chicago, and Josh is one of the fund managers I see regularly when I attend corporate presentations hosted by 49 North in downtown Los Angeles. Josh, welcome to the program. Thank you. You've been published and interviewed recently with regard to your expertise and interest in oil and gas. Why am I seeing you at these gold and silver stock presentations? First of all, I view it as a free education. Here in Los Angeles, company managements don't often come to visit to see investors and give presentations. And so it's great to get the opportunity to look at companies that are in sectors that I may invest in at some point in the future and to get to know them. And through this uh, series of lunches that we've been going to, I've been able to get a decent education in the mining business, particularly gold and silver miners, as well as also uh, basic materials miners. So it's been a great education and I'm learning more every time I go. And I don't currently own any mining stocks, but I may invest in some in the future. So are you collecting information for that point where you might throw your own switch and jump in? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's not. I'm not purely on a knowledge fishing expedition. I am actually interested in making profitable investments. And it does actually look like an interesting time to potentially be getting involved. I'm not sure that I have the knowledge base yet to make large investments in this space, but I feel like I'm getting close and the valuations seem like they're getting interesting enough that maybe at some point soon it'll be worth diving in. You may not have the knowledge base that you feel you need to get involved, but you ask the most detailed questions. Are you saying at this point you haven't invested at all in the sector? I mean, I have invested before in mining companies, but typically they've been in extremely deep value scenarios. So there was a company I invested in a couple years ago, which was trading for a discount to the value of its cash on its balance sheet, and it had no debt, and it had assets that it was preparing to sell. So I invested in that, and I did quite well investing in it, but that was more of a balance sheet and asset play rather than a mining play. Now, I've been following the mining sector for a good 15 years. What if I give you a recommendation on a company not good enough? I deal with this a lot in, in the oil and gas space, where I get recommendations from brilliant people who have been involved in the sector for a long time and have great track records. What I found is that when I close my eyes and jump in blindly after someone, that somehow never seems to work out well. Even I have a friend in the oil and gas space who he's a a fund manager and almost everything he gets involved in that he tells me about seems to work. And the one thing that hasn't worked so far 
as the one that I followed him into. And I fortunately only followed him in in a small way, and I had done some due diligence on my own, but I try to be very careful about how I position my portfolio, and I do it off of very sort of strict criteria, and I'm only interested in investing in the most attractive and the deepest value investments that are available in the market. Now, you and I were talking the other day at one of these lunches, and I asked you why you love oil and gas so much. Of course, you have an extensive background in it, and that's one reason to love it, correct? The other reason is from inception, these things tend to turn around really fast as far as producing revenue. Yeah, well, I'd say there's a few things. So first of all, I think it's a really good idea to invest in sectors and in spaces where there is a good macroeconomic environment and where you have great tailwinds. And I think with both natural gas and oil, there are substantial tailwinds. With natural gas, it's trading at a almost decade low currently. And with oil, there's a lot of geopolitical risk and the supply and demand are very tight. So if there's any sort of geopolitical event that affects the supply of oil, uh, you could see a supply shock and you could see the price increase dramatically. So just from a macro perspective, it's very interesting. From a value perspective, there aren't that many value investors in the oil and gas investing business. There are many people who invest based on growth or growth as a reasonable price or will invest based on resource in place or trying to get exposure to the commodity. But there aren't that many people who take value methodology of the sort that Joel Greenblatt or Warren Buffett, primarily more like Joel Greenblatt with special situations, really sort of looking for deep value, looking for assets that are not appreciated by the market, looking for strong balance sheets and large margins of safety, and not necessarily believing too much in growth stories that are told by management or by sell-side research analysts or by promotional owners of, of the stock. Um, and then finally, like you said, specifically why I would invest in oil and gas over mining projects, all things being equal, I think there's less risk in a oil project than there is in a mining project in the sense that you drill a well and you see how much oil you produce. You drill a hole for a mine and you have one data point for the mine. If you produce the oil, you get cash, you get revenue, you get cash flow, you can get paid back on your investment. The time from deploying the capital to getting paid back for the capital you've deployed is much shorter. It's much shorter cycle time. And so you have to risk less capital in order to get payback. The returns might not be as high. So if you spend $20 million buying a prospect and delineating a mine, you could end up generating substantial returns. You could end up with a billion-dollar mine and sell and get a great return on your invested capital. But the risk on the first dollar, I think, is greater in the mining industry than it is in the oil and gas industry because you're going to get that first dollar paid back sooner, and you can take those dollars that you've invested and invest them in other projects. So it's a lower risk, possibly lower return, but certainly lower risk way to deploy capital. And as a value investor, I'm very interested in not losing money. That's sort of my first priority. And getting your money back soon and getting your money back with a higher probability is one way to not lose money. When the market is this cheap, and I'm talking about the price of natural gas, what's the motivation for a lot of these exploration companies to do business? There isn't very much of one. And the companies that are doing business often are doing it in a value-destroying way. So ironically, the companies that are going to explore for natural gas and that are drilling for it to develop it right now are losing money, and some of them are losing huge amounts of money. I think the value in natural gas right now is holding reserves, is holding production, 
and being able to generate cash flow from it, but not deploying huge amounts of capital expenditure in order to increase your production currently. I think it, it doesn't make any sense to try to increase your natural gas production at $2 gas because no matter where you are in the U.S., you're losing money if you're drilling new gas wells. And there are companies that say otherwise, and uh, Generally, their competitors will say that they're lying. Uh, you know, it's a very interesting process going and meeting with companies because you know company A and company B may have adjacent properties that have identical rock characteristics and their wells have identical production characteristics and they cost the same to develop. And one company will say we've stopped drilling here because it's totally uneconomic. Another company will have in their presentation that they're generating 20 or 30 percent rates of return. Obviously, one of them is wrong, and generally speaking, the one that's wrong is the company that's claiming higher returns. From basically the same wells. So I think the way to do it is to come in and pay a low price to get a natural gas resource, but not to go and deploy huge amounts of capital developing that resource now. I think you hold the resource as an option, and when natural gas prices recover, then you go and develop it. And you're investing in some of these companies, right? I am, yeah. Well, how are you making money, or how are you going to make money? So one way I'm making money and I think it's a, a little bit of a different strategy than many investors are, are taking right now. And it seems to be working. It hasn't worked perfectly, but it's working. And I think it'll work very well over the short to medium term, actually, is there are companies that are drilling for natural gas and are also getting oil or natural gas liquids as byproducts. And specifically finding companies that are rapidly growing their natural gas production and their oil and natural gas liquids production, I think is a good way to get natural gas exposure and to make money in the process. So there's one company I'm invested in called Gastar Exploration, and they're drilling in the Marcellus Shale in a liquids-rich place. And they're increasing their natural gas production tremendously. They're also increasing their oil and natural gas liquids production tremendously. And so basically they're drilling wells that at the current price are generating in excess of 40% rates of return. So that's a nice way for them to create a lot of value, but it also is effectively buying themselves an option where they'll be able to earn much, much higher returns on that capital investment as natural gas prices go from their current $2 price per thousand cubic feet to potentially five or seven dollars or wherever it takes to, for once those prices have settled and, and once the natural gas market has recovered. How volatile are these stocks? Are you a trader or are you in for the long term or a little bit of everything? I'm generally very long term oriented, but given the extreme volatility of these stocks, there's more return available if I'm somewhat flexible in terms of trading and not just buying stocks and closing my eyes and holding my breath and waiting until the, the stocks recover. So if I know that a company is drilling a, a series of wells and I don't think that the wells are going to work very well, even if the company is undervalued or if I, I don't like an acquisition that they're doing, even if the company is undervalued, given the large number of companies that are available in the market that are trading at large discounts to intrinsic value, I'm happy to sell some of their stock and move on and redeploy that money into another stock or just to hold cash and wait until I think there's a better opportunity to own the stock. You said sell some. You don't bail on a company if they're losing money because there's another opportunity, do you? Yeah, I mean, I'll redeploy money into the best risk-adjusted return place I can put it, but I also have to wait the 
size of a position based on the expected return and the expected return over the short and medium term. If I'm in something I really like, but I don't think it's going to earn a great return over the short or medium term, but I think it'll earn a great return over the longer term, I might trim that position and deploy it into something that I think will have a shorter cycle time. So if I own stock in like Gastar, for example, and they're growing production and they're great, and the market's maybe going to recognize the value there or maybe not, then I might trim a position like that in order to own a stock where they're in the process of selling an asset. And my view on the asset market is that they're going to earn a a much higher, they're going to recover a much higher amount of money from the asset than, than their current valuation. So like the timing on that might be, if it's more defined and if it's a shorter period of time, it might be easier to deploy money away from something that's sort of a longer term investment, make money in a shorter term investment, and then possibly redeploy it back into one of those core positions. Have you sold low just to get out, just because you realize it's never going to go anywhere, not in the medium, not in the midterm, not in the long term? Uh, yes, I have. Everyone makes mistakes. I've made more than my share of mistakes. Just because something isn't interesting for my portfolio right now doesn't mean that in a week it won't be interesting. I mean, given how volatile these stocks are, a stock that's at $5 right now could be at $2 in a few weeks. And if it's at $2, especially if there's something that I saw that made me not want to be owning it, if it's at $2, maybe it's a really, really compelling investment. There are very few companies where I would say, absolutely, this is not something that I would own. And the ones that I would are generally, they're perpetrating some sort of scam or there's something that they're doing that really is fundamentally problematic and and isn't something that I ever would have owned in the first place. Do you see a lot of scams? Yes, I do. What's the average? between scam and reality in in the oil and gas sector? I think among the larger companies, they're all real to a large extent. I mean, there it's more a question of are they embedding all of the costs that are involved in developing and bringing a well onto production in their economic returns? Or are they you know, being fully honest about how much their wells cost and what kind of returns they're able to generate from their wells? So on the larger side, I think I don't think there are really any Enrons out there right now in the oil and gas producing space. I know people have talked about Chesapeake like that. I don't think Chesapeake is a fraud. I think they have issues and they've had corporate disclosure issues, but I don't, I don't think they're a fraud. On the smaller side, I think it gets more interesting. Certainly companies that aren't listed on the New York Stock Exchange or have recently been listed, companies that don't have a lot of revenue and cash flow, companies that have done unusual things with their balance sheets, like writing up assets that they've acquired or doing other things where they're technically allowed, but they're unusual. Among those sorts of companies, the percentages that are are frauds are are pretty high. So if somebody, let's say, happens to option a property somewhere, there's no work that's going to be done on the property, but they think historically there there might be some sort of resource on that property, and they're talking about it, and they're issuing a release here and there, you're never going anywhere near it, are you? Chances are. That's not necessarily true. I mean, I've I've actually, I've, I've owned stocks like that. I'll look at it very closely, and I'll make sure if I'm going to invest in it that I know it's real. But yeah, I mean, I'll own, I think there's huge mispricings in the private market for oil and gas, particularly for leases, where people take leases on on property, and in some cases they're worthless, and in some cases they're worth a lot. If it's immediately adjacent to a great well, and the geology is very similar, you know, that lease is probably very valuable. And so even if they don't have production from it, it's still going to be valuable. I just need to verify that they actually own it. If I know they own it, and I know what it's worth, and it's trading for a big discount to what it's worth, I could potentially invest in something like that. It just requires more work and more due diligence on my part to make sure I'm not investing into a scam. What's your track record for yourself and those that are 
part of your fund. There are some <laughs> securities uh, disclosure issues involved with the fund. I can say that generally outside of the fund, just in terms of how I've done, I've generally compounded money at about a 25% compounded rate of return from when I've started investing seriously in 2007 through to today. So if I was personally just investing a dollar in 2007, today would probably be worth somewhere around $2.50. Do you encourage them to do as much research as you do? I don't act as a stockbroker. I'm advisor to a limited partnership, which is effectively what they call a hedge fund. So what happens is I just run the fund however I'm going to run the fund. The majority of my personal money in it, my dad has a large portion of his personal money in it, some other relatives have money in it, and then other you know, business associates and uh, limited partners uh, invest money into, into the partnership. I invest in the way in which I think is going to earn the maximum return and try to limit volatility to a certain extent, but my focus is primarily on just earning the most amount of money as possible for my partners. So I'm interested in having partners who are fully aligned with me, and so I try to explain what I'm doing the best as possible, and I try to help them understand that the investments that I'm making in oil and gas typically are volatile, and stocks go up and they go down, and just because I own something doesn't mean it can't go down more. And in fact, in many cases, when something is attractive to me, it will go down more in the short term. There's a reason why it's been trading you know, a stock that was at five and goes to two. There's a reason it went from five to two, and that same reason could make it go from two to 150. And it, it feels really bad to lose 25% on your investment in the short run, but if, you're, if you own it because you think it's worth five, and it goes from two to 150 and then back up to five, your performance Performance may look volatile, but in the end, your partners will be very happy. So it's important to me to have partners who are aligned with that and who understand what it is that I'm doing, such that when there are short-term drawdowns, they understand what's happening, and who understand that over the long run, I've done very well, and that with the detailed research process and only investing in things where there's a limited chance of permanent capital loss and where there's substantial potential upside, that over the long run, the, that process should do very well. I rarely go through individual investments. I never go through my whole portfolio with a potential investor in the fund. That doesn't help necessarily. What, what helps is showing them a few investments, showing them the process, letting them see my track record, and then there's a certain amount of trust that's built on a rapport that's built on over time. A decision is made to invest or not invest in the fund. My next question concerns the geopolitical events in the middle least and or potential catastrophes. Now, we know that any talk involving anything in the Persian Gulf, anything involving Iran, has usually spiked the price of oil, and there's several entities geopolitically and sometimes financially that like that to happen because it inflates the price of oil and share prices and what have you. What are your thoughts with regard to what's happening or not happening in the Persian Gulf? I think it's important to take things into the context of the current situation and specifically the current supply situation for oil and the demand situation for oil. We're, we're at a, a point where supply and demand are matched very closely and it's the first time in, to my knowledge, in almost 100 years where there isn't excess supply. Since the existence of OPEC, there has always been this ability of OPEC to supply more oil than they were currently supplying. Uh, there was this excess capacity, which at one point was measured in the tens of millions of barrels a day of production or potential production that was not being produced. That excess capacity is almost all gone, and many cynics have said that it's completely gone. They don't believe the Saudi Arabian production potential numbers. I'm not 
all the way over the fence on that. It's unclear. I haven't done enough work to really know exactly how much production potential there is still in Saudi Arabia. But it does seem, based on how the oil prices are reacting and based on stockpiles around the world, it does seem, and inventories around the world, it does seem like supply and demand are, are tightly balanced right now. And any slight movement in the economy down is bringing oil prices down a lot. And any slight movement up in the economy is bringing prices up a lot. And any threat to supply is affecting prices a lot. Like last year with Libya, Libya doesn't even produce that much oil, but there being a civil war in Libya and the production getting cut off, they represented, I don't know, two or three or something percent of the total world production. And that moved the price of oil by somewhere between 10 and $20 a barrel. Was that so, good for your portfolio? Uh, yeah, it was. It was good for my portfolio. And that's one reason why people invest in my fund. And that's one reason why I'm investing in oil and gas is I think, like I said, I think it's an investment space where there are tailwinds, where there is, you don't have to flap your wings quite as hard. There are things that are happening in the world that are beneficial and that are happening beyond the specific companies I'm investing in that are beneficial for those investments beyond just sort of their specific wells that they're drilling or the specific projects that they're engaging in. If the Gulf of Hormuz was blocked by Iran, even for a short period of time, it would have a dramatic effect on the price of oil. And it might be a short-term effect or it might be a medium-term effect. I mean, people might Governments might choose to limit the exports of oil from their countries. Argentina has been known to limit exports of a number of different things, and they have extremely punitive export tax that they've imposed recently on their oil production. And there are other countries that have histories of doing that. Russia has blocked wheat exports and other sorts of exports before and spiked those commodities, and Russia is the world's largest producer of oil, uh, not Saudi Arabia. So there are a lot of potential risks that would, could come along with an oil price spike that might actually keep the price of oil higher. And even with demand destruction, you could still see a, a higher price for a long period of time. Are you always selling into those markets? Not necessarily. I mean, it depends. If there was a combination of a geopolitical event and then um, some sort of tariff or export prohibition or restriction that turned a short-term spike into something that looked like it was going to be longer, I wouldn't necessarily sell. It would force me to, to go back through my different investments and reevaluate what I think their intrinsic value is. Likely, I would sell some, but I wouldn't necessarily have to sell just because the prices were going up. When during the last five or six years has this not been lucrative overall with regard to investing in oil and gas? Well, there was definitely a period of time from the middle of 2008 to early 2009 where it was extremely difficult to earn a return. There were short selling restrictions that made it difficult to make money on the short side. Uh, margin requirements were changing at prime brokers. Stocks were collapsing. The commodities were behaving oddly and collapsing. And there was irrational selling. I mean, there were companies that were excellent companies that were completely tossed out. There were stocks that went down 90%, 95% that were not going bankrupt, that were cash flow positive, that had assets, real assets, where there was a real market for those assets. It was a period where it was extremely difficult to earn a, a positive return. And I'll be the first to admit, I, I lost money during that period. And if there were another period like that, I would also lose money. What was important was in early 2009, being able to pick my head up and say, okay, this has been horrible, but look at these amazing opportunities. I have cash on the sidelines I can deploy. And there are assets out there that I can buy literally for pennies on the dollar. And I can buy them in public equity markets without the issues around you know trying to do private transactions and where I can get tremendous exposure to things that you know I would never have 
owned otherwise because historically they had traded with huge premiums. And so that was a very good opportunity for me. And overall, like if you took it just uh, on an 18-month period from when things started to get horrible in the summer of 2008 to, let's say, the end of 2009, I actually net made money because of the great opportunities in early 2009. Any signs that that may be happening again in oil and gas? Any signs at all? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Go on. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard. I'm not, I'm not a great macroeconomist. I did study economics at the University of Chicago, so that was, you know, did give me some background, but that's not my profession, and I'm not great at predicting what's going to happen with the economy or the stock market at large. The way that stocks have been trading recently, though, they've displayed similar characteristics to mid-2008, early and mid-2008. There have been price spikes that have been hard to explain. There has been a shift from where liquidity has dried up in the market and where smaller stocks are trading less and less volume and they're trading down on less and less volume and volume is increasing for larger companies. I mean, it's still decreasing, but it seems like the volume is shifting from small to large. And actually, I have a theory about that, but I think that that... Well, it doesn't uh, make any sense, so go on. What's right. your theory? Well, I guess first let's stick with, so why is this maybe okay. similar to 2008? So oil prices were at a point recently where price was too high and gas price was too high and it was starting to reduce demand for gasoline. Here in California, gas prices were almost at $5 a gallon. And when you start getting close to $5 a gallon, you start scaring people. And people haven't fully processed that there's been inflation. I mean, prices are a lot higher than they were a few years ago, regardless of the consumer price index and, or, and what that tells you. So since they haven't fully processed that there's been substantial inflation, they, they react very negatively to marginal movements in the price of gasoline beyond a certain price point. And it seems like that price point may be $4 across the country and maybe 450 here in California. So when prices move beyond that, you could readily see it. You could see traffic was less. You could see more people on the trains. You could see more people on buses. I mean, it's, it's readily apparent. If you're looking for it, you could see it. You can see it in demand statistics too, and you could see it in gasoline consumption. The gasoline consumption numbers a month ago were horrible. And that's actually the price of oil pulled back a little bit because of that. So that actually was similar to you know mid-2008. Gasoline prices spiked, and you could see there was just much less traffic because people just stop driving as much. So when, when you can consistently drive around L.A. without any issue, the economy's in terrible shape. Right, and you'd better be short gasoline because if you're if, if there's no regardless of what I said about about there being some sort of event that where where the supply is constrained if you completely kill demand if gasoline were at ten dollars uh, a gallon and if that happened over a short period of time I think you'd see substantial switching where people switch from driving to doing other things or where they just choose to drive less that would be a, a scary situation for our economy in general I use actual data to figure these things out but it's it's good to be able to see these kinds of things where you can just look around and what you notice incidentally actually happens to be a good indicator for what's happening with the commodity. That's how I think that today is similar to 2008. There was a little bit of high prices that were scaring away demand from an oil perspective, and the economy is pretty weak and it appears that similar to 2008, we have weak political leadership and the weak political leadership doesn't appear to be doing the things that you would want from a policy perspective to help the economy recover. So in the absence of that and with a weak economy and with weak fundamentals, you could expect with poor policy that you, you would expect economy to not necessarily react positively. If you want, we can talk about the reduction in liquidity. I want to just follow up on what you just stated. Do you think this is the second leg of the great recession, parentheses, depression? I think many people compared 
our current president to President Roosevelt in terms of charisma, in terms of the social programs being implemented, in terms of regulation increases, in terms of tax increases, across a number of different fronts, and also just bringing hope to the country when, when they were elected and there being lots of potential with their, their platform. And you know, I'm not a politician, I'm not a policy analyst, but it sure looks like a lot of the things that we've done have been similar to things that were done in the early 30s. And many economists that I, I studied with at University of Chicago claim that those policies made the stock market crash 29 and the recession of 29 and 30 into a depression that lasted for 10 plus years. And I do believe that if you implement the wrong policies, that you can make a recession into depression. And I do believe that there are policies that are being implemented that are wrong. I'm not saying that I'm a Democrat or Republican. I just, there, there are things from an economist's perspective that are not intelligent and that are going to cause economic harm. And there are other reasons to, to implement them or not, but just purely from an economic perspective, there are a number of policies that are being implemented that are causing harm. And you can see it as an investor. You can see it when you talk to companies about their capital expenditure decisions, about their hiring decisions. There are a number of different facets of, of that. So yeah, I mean, it's possible. I'm not saying it's 1937, but I mean, I'm not sure it's, it's possible. And that's scary, but I think it's also exciting because within that, as an investor, in the same way as in you know 2008 was awful and the end of 2008 was horrible and the beginning of 2009 was even worse, as an investor who is willing to say, okay, I've owned this thing, but there are better things available. If you can take your losses and you can redeploy capital into the most undervalued places, into the highest quality assets and the highest quality businesses that are going to survive a depression or a recession, you can earn excess returns that more than make up for any, any losses that you've incurred in the process and that can overall generate a really attractive return for your investment. And certainly that's what happened at the beginning of 2009, not only in oil and gas, but with mining stocks, which have since seems have collapsed again, similar to the fundamentals that you were talking about with regard to liquidity, where the market is not trading much, these stocks have taken a dive, and when there is trading, they're taking a further dive, and it doesn't make any sense if, if you lay out all the fundamentals now. Your theory on that? You mean regarding mining stocks in particular? No, no regarding oil and gas. Okay. I think it's less that oil and gas stocks are collapsing. Certainly natural gas stocks have traded down a lot, but you can explain that just by looking at the impact to their revenue, cash flow, and earnings of lower natural gas prices. So the fact that natural gas prices are lower means that the stock prices probably should be somewhat lower. I think some of them have overcorrected and they're now very cheap and very compelling. The odder thing with oil and gas companies particularly the small ones where, again, liquidity is, has exited, stocks are not very liquid, and there aren't very many people paying attention to them, is you have companies who fundamentally change, who are either going from being rapidly growing and creating a lot of value to drilling a series of, of dry holes and bad wells, or on the flip side where you see companies discover tremendous resources, execute excellently on their business plans, raise capital in tough environments, redeploy the capital at high rates of return, and no one notices. Those are the opportunities that I'm focused on right now, and that's, I think, where far and away the best returns will come. Those are the types of companies I was investing in in early 2009 that earned ridiculously good returns, 
And I think that those types of investments will earn good returns here. Now, I'll talk about one company just to highlight sort of how extreme this valuation gap is and how much the market's missing. This company is called Gale Force Petroleum. It was a recap. It had been a public entity that had been around for a number of years uh, in another sector. It was overlevered. It was restructured and recapitalized as an oil and gas company in late 2009, early 2010. And it proceeded with a business model of buying underdeveloped old oil fields, redeveloping them to grow production, and then potentially drilling additional infill wells to grow production even more, and to do it in a very, very capital-efficient way and in a very low-risk way. The theory is if you go and buy a field for its fair value for its current production, and then you do anything to improve the production, you basically are creating every additional barrel you add, you create a lot of value. What they've managed to do over that period of time is grow their production from zero barrels a day to currently it's around 400 barrels a day of production. And if you look at the amount of money they've spent versus the amount of money you'd have to spend to go and buy 400 barrels a day of production, there's a tremendous difference in between the two. They're creating production for a quarter of the cost of what it would cost you if you went to actually go and buy that production uh, in the private asset market for oil production. And what's even more compelling is, so they have this track record where they've really efficiently and effectively deployed capital. They recently raised money and they deployed some of it into a new acquisition. They've said that they're going to get from their current level of production to at least 800 barrels a day by the end of the year and potentially 1,000, and no one seems to care. You know, the stock is up a little bit, but it's up on the growth that they've already achieved. It's not even pricing in the liquidation value of their current production. So it's remarkable. I mean, they've basically, they've deployed, they've effectively executed on their business plan. They have tremendous growth ahead of them. The acquisition that they did, they won't have to raise capital at any point in the future. They have a, a large amount of availability on their revolver, and they'll be able to go and grow the company to 1,000 barrels a day maybe by the end of the year, and then grow to 2,000 barrels a day by the end of next year and do it in an extremely capital efficient way. And no one seems to care. I mean, there were similar things in 2009, like Northern Oil and Gas, which had this great production ramp. They didn't need money. They had great assets. They could go and sell their assets for a multiple of what they were trading for. And they started executing on their plan and no one cared. And eventually money came back into the market. People started investing in smaller cap stocks. And Northern Oil went from being a $50 million company to today it's, what, like a $1.4 billion company. Obviously, there was great execution there. But there's also great execution going on right now at Gale Force. And they're not even pricing in the value of the existing assets and the existing production. Forget the ability of the company to actually go through those fields and dramatically grow production. Well, where do you think the stock should be? Because I think, I don't know when you got in, but maybe you can tell us, as of last October, that the stock was at $0.09, cents and it's more than triple. So I say somebody cares, but maybe not this week. I bought my stock for $0.20 cents a share. Okay. I did a small private placement with the company, and then I bought additional stock in the open market, ranging from prices in between $0.16 cents a share. And I think the highest price I paid is $0.30 cents a share. In many ways, you've doubled. Yeah, I've done well so far. But what's been interesting with it is that the stock price has lagged the value of just the existing production that they have. Okay. So with mining companies, you know, you go and you invest in a mine, and it's all about the potential value in a sale. And so you have no production, no production, no production, and then a ton of production. And before you get to the ton of production, typically these junior mining companies go, and if they're successful, they sell, and they achieve a multiple times return on their investment. So Gilforce is kind of doing a similar thing, where they're going and they're investing and they're building this potential value. 
No one's giving them any credit for the potential value. But the nice thing about oil companies is they have this existing production and this ex- existing cash flow. Gilforce isn't even – forget the potential value. They're not even getting credit for their existing production. They're getting a fraction of the credit. So when you, you did point out that the stock has gone up a lot. Well, over that period of time, they were able to show production growth from 150 barrels of oil a day to almost 400 barrels of oil a day today. Which reflects a 300% growth since October, correct? Correct, but it's not just about how much – production it's grown, it's also saying, okay, so sure, it was trading at a discount then. It's trading at a similar discount now to the production, except now it has the track record where they can say, hey, we're capable of doing this. We're executing on our business plan. We have this ramp that we can continue to grow at. We're trading at a similar discount to our production. So give us credit, at least for our production, if not for the value that's there. So if they had 150 barrels of oil a day and they were trading for $10 million, and now they have 400 barrels a day, and they're trading for $25 million. It's a similar discount. It's a similar amount you're paying per barrel of oil produced or barrel of oil equivalents, a little bit of its natural gas, like less than 20%. It's a similar discount to the production value. They've shown they're able to increase their production. They've said they're going to increase it. They said they're going to increase it last year, and they followed through, and they actually increased by right about their uh, targeted uh, production growth. So I think the market is lagging. I think it's very hard in this market for stocks to actually go up, especially for smaller cap stocks where there's less liquidity. I think people look at the chart and they say, oh, well, there must be some other stock where the price has gone down rather than up over the last two months and therefore I'm going to deploy my money there. They're not looking at the fundamentals of the company and saying, wow, this company is worth, let's say today, just that production is worth $40 million. $100,000 a floating barrel, $40 million. The enterprise value right now is around twenty-five. So right now, if you just went and liquidated it, you stopped everything, you liquidated it, you'd get a, a double on your equity. The big dip was back in October, and you came in above that dip and mm-hmm. have done well. And you'll usually wait and see what, what happens. You don't come in on the dip. Right? No, no. I, I mean, I try to. With these guys, actually, the, the story is that I knew the largest shareholder and they were telling me about how great this company was, but we were also involved in another transaction, and so I was focusing on that transaction and focusing on other stocks. What caught my attention with Galeforce was their ability to actually execute on their production growth. So I looked at them when they were producing 150 barrels a day, and this actually may be helpful with understanding why I like this so much and why it's more compelling here than it was when it was trading for you know, 10 cents or 12 cents. Um, when I looked at it, they, they were producing 150 barrels a day. They hadn't disclosed any additional production. It didn't seem like they had done anything. They didn't have very many press releases. There just wasn't a lot going on. The stock was falling and it was unclear. It was like, okay, well, they have this proved reserve value that their engineers have said that they have. And sure, they've grown their production from nothing to 150 barrels, but they've bought a lot of that. They, they hadn't shown that they were going to be able to deploy capital effectively. Well, since then, they've deployed capital very effectively. They went from 150 barrels last summer to 275 barrels by the end of last year to now my estimate is that they're producing 400. They haven't announced their recent production rate. The last production rate I think they announced was 325 barrels a day, and that was two months ago. But my understanding is based on the acquisition that they closed recently, plus some additional workovers that I estimate. I don't have any inside knowledge on this. Just my understanding of sort of how their production growth is working and sort of where they're going to get you by the end of the year, my estimate is they're producing about 400 barrels a day. So because they've been able to show that they can do it, and especially for a small company to be able to deploy capital very efficiently, it's extremely powerful. So I would argue that at the very least, the company should trade for the value of its proved reserves. 
very least, it should trade for the value of the current production and the very easily turned on production. So that would be, at least as of their last reserve report, that would be $40 million. More likely, if you did a reserve report today, more likely their approved reserves would be more like $50 or $60 million. So somewhere in between the value just of the production, which would be around $40 million, and the value of the proof reserves, which was likely 50 or 60 million. The, the remarkable thing about oil and gas, and also with mining, people don't give a lot of credit to most of these companies for their ability to create value. So there's an equity value here beyond just the assets. And the fact that they've been able to grow production very cost-effectively means that as a business, there's probably more value there than just the value of their current production. If you give them a dollar, they've turned a dollar into four dollars repeatedly. There's a value in that business, obviously, and they're generating cash flow from their properties and redeploying that cash. So given their ability to earn very high returns on capital they deploy, I would argue that they should actually trade for a premium to their existing asset value, which you know won't happen probably at any point in the near future. It does happen with larger cap oil and gas stocks. I'm not holding my breath for Gilforce to trade to a premium its net asset value, but at the very least, I would expect that as they continue to execute on their business plan, not only will they continue to grow their market value as they grow production and maintain this sort of sixty or seventy thousand dollars per flowing barrel valuation, but I think they'll actually close the gap, and I think they'll at the very least get to a hundred thousand dollar per flowing barrel valuation, which would get you to let's say hundred million dollar enterprise value by the end of the year or early next year when they get to that thousand barrel a day mark relative to the current market cap of around twenty million dollars. I think that that'll be a very nice return for me. Well, let's say the stock were to trade at a dollar or a dollar twenty or a dollar fifty within the next three or four months if it were just to spike up. When we see spikes like this, usually in, in other areas, quick spikes like that, what goes up fast should come down fast. Is that sustainable? I think what they would do, I obviously, I'm not the CEO and I'm not on their board, so it's not like I can tell you they'll do this for sure. What My bet of what they would do with that is they would go and use their equity as currency and buy more assets and do more with it. So it's actually possible. So there are companies that do this and have done this extremely effectively where they trade for a premium to their net asset value, or at least they get up to trading around their net asset value, and they use their equity as currency and they build a lot of value. So like Magnum 100 has done that very well. Gary Evans is brilliant, and he's done very well for his shareholders over time. And he's been able, I don't own the stock, but he's been able to create a lot of value with his equity. And there are other companies out there that have done that or that trade for a premium to their net asset value. One today is called Halcon resources. I don't own it. It trades for like two times its net asset value. And it does that because the CEO has shown that he can create a lot of value over time. And he's using his equity to go and buy companies and buy assets. He's buying geo resources. They announced that recently. And he's using overpriced equity to acquire other companies and to acquire assets. And he's backfilling the value for the company. And people figure that over time, he'll create enough value to make up for the value that's currently embedded in the equity and then some. I'm not sure I believe that for them, and I'm not sure I'd want to hold on to a stock that was trading for two times its net asset value, but I think there's a long way for Gilforce to go from where it's trading to where its net asset value will be at the end of the year. So with the track record it has during the last year, if you weren't in now, 
it's a more compelling story, perhaps, to get involved, you might accumulate more, or you might buy if you weren't in. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I think it's more compelling now at 30 or 31 cents a share than it was at 12 cents a share. I might have touched nine, but I think the only shares that ever really traded near that low traded around 12, and the only real volume that there was was around sort of 14 or 15 cents. I think definitely compared to 14 or 15 cents uh, in October or whenever it was that that happened, yeah, I think it's much more compelling now than it was then. I think the combination, again, of higher production, so it's actually trading at a similar multiple to its production rate, and the track record of successful execution. They're a proven team. They've, it's worked. What they're doing is working. And instead of having the same degree of skepticism as displayed by the low valuation per flowing barrel, you'd think that the market at some point would start to recognize it. And over the last few months, it has begun to recognize it a little bit. But you know, what I'd like to see is that gap to close and for them to start to trade at you know, $100,000 a flowing barrel. And potentially, I think, you know, again, I think there's a possibility they start to trade for more than that, both because of the management's proven ability to execute. And as an investor, you can look at them and say, okay, even if I didn't believe they can execute, what are they drilling? What kind of wells are they? What kind of production rates are they getting? What kind of workovers are they doing? How much money are they spending? And if you evaluated them agnostic to the potential or the capabilities of the management team and just looked at them from an asset perspective, you could actually give them some credit for some of the production they're going to be bringing on in the next few months. And these are the kinds of opportunities you look for in an otherwise sluggish market. Yeah. I mean, I think this is how I'm going to make a lot of money this year. I think specifically Galeforce. I think Galeforce is going to make me a lot of money. And I think that they're going to do it even if the market sucks. And honestly, even if the market crashes, and even if oil prices uh, and oil prices go down a lot, and even if oil company stocks go down, I think Gilforce has the potential to actually outperform this year, both relatively and absolutely. I think the stock could still go up because if you think about it, let's say they get to a thousand barrels a day by the end of the year. You know, they're saying 800. I think they'll they'll be able to get to a thousand. Let's say they get to a thousand barrels a day by the end of the year. If they get to 1,000 barrels a day and they stay at their current 31 cents a share, it's insane. They'd be trading for $20,000 a flowing barrel. And if you add the debt that they'd have to incur, maybe it'd be $30,000 a flowing barrel on an enterprise value basis. This would be for a company that had tripled its production that year. It's insane. There's no way I would be shocked if they trade at that valuation at that production level. And I think that it's very likely they'll be able to achieve that production level. So that's that's my thesis. I mean, it's simple. Like, if I didn't own it, I'd go and buy a bunch of it. Right now, it's my largest position by far. So I'm, I'm not buying any just because it would be irresponsible of me to buy any more. And uh, you know, if it traded down a lot, I'd probably go and sell some stuff and buy even more. So all of your eggs are not exactly in one basket. No, all of my eggs are not in one basket. But this is the largest position that I've ever had in my fund over the last couple of years that I've been running it, and then it's the largest position that I've ever had as an investment professional. Well, you've stated a few times that you are a shareholder. I am not a shareholder, and they are not a sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. But I've sure enjoyed hearing about uh, Gale Force and everything else we've talked about today, Josh. Thank you very much. Thanks for the time. I've been speaking today with Joshua Young. Portfolio Manager of Young Capital Management in our Los Angeles studios. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Feel like sharing? Sharing this with your pals. Find these segments on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. Join me now for a conversation with Eric Fear the Chief Operating Officer of Silvercrest Mines. Silvercrest Mines trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL, now the OTCQX, 
as STBZF. Mr. Fear has over 25 years of international experience in a senior capacity, including exploration, acquisition, development, and production of numerous mining projects in Chile, Brazil, Honduras, Mexico, and Peru. He previously served as chief geologist with Pegasus Gold. He was a senior engineer and manager with Newmont Mining and project manager with Eldorado Gold Corp. Silvercrest Mines is a Mexican precious metals producer with headquarters based in Vancouver, B.C. Silvercrest flagship property is the 100% owned Santa Elena Mine, which is located 150 kilometers northeast of Hermosillo in the state of Sonora, Mexico. The mine is a high-grade epithermal gold and silver producer. A three-year expansion plan is underway to double metals production at the Santa Elena Mine, and exploration programs are rapidly advancing the definition of a large polymetallic deposit at the La Jolla property in Durango State, Mexico. Eric, welcome to the program. Great. Thanks for having us back on the air, Ellis. It's always an opportunity to get the story out. Well, you've got quite a story, and you've had quite a story for a significant amount of time. I'm just looking over your latest news release, and for quarter one of 2012, silver production is up 108%, and gold ounces are up 198%. That's outstanding. Yeah, that's correct, Ellis. Part of it is that we're comparing the quarter of 2011 with the current quarter. In the quarter of 2011, we were in the ramp-up phase, so we weren't at full production. So that's part of the bump-up. The other part of the bump-up and having such a significant change in percent is that we're getting better recoveries, we're getting better throughput through our crusher at the mine site, and all of that wraps up into more ounces and more cash flow for the company. So you're saying a lot of it is about the tools? It's about the tools and, and the people. A lot of it rolls back to a lot of the planning, strategic planning. You know, you got to have smart people on the ground and boots on the ground to get this work done. I give a big hand to our, our production team that's in Mexico. Great people, great people to work with. The local people that we're using in Mexico are top-notch people. We've taken people that have been working out on, on the ranching side a year ago and trained them up, and they're doing an excellent job. It all means savings to us and uh, more cash flow and opportunities for our shareholders and potential shareholders. One of the things mining companies come across, especially if they're going into production or even the development stage or exploration stage, is finding the right personnel in the area. And you're saying that you're just training locals and putting them to work. I implemented a program before we started construction of 70% local hire local being within about 35 kilometers of the mine site and we're at that now so we actually got guys that are, are local guys that are at the foreman level superintendent level that are running the crushers that are running the plant that are working in the pit and they really appreciate the job it's a great opportunity for the community we got great community support one other thing that Santa Elena, which is our flagship for Silvercrest, uh, it's the flagship mine, is that it's a very attractive area. So you're close to Hermosillo, which has great infrastructure, an international airport, over a million people, and it's a very attractive place to work because the alternative is to work up in the Sahara Madre. You're on rotation. You don't get to see your families. So we get uh, quite a few people that are interested in coming to Santa Elena and work for us because of that. In addition to the production that you have going on and expanding that production capability, what about further exploration and stepping out the resource itself at Santa Elena? 
What's happening in that direction? We get a twofold plan for this year. One is to expand the resources at Santa Elena, and I'm shooting for a 50% to 100% increase in our underground resources. We've started up a drilling program, so look forward to those news releases coming up over the next several months. Beyond Santa Elena and expanding that resource, with success of expanding that resource, it adds mine life, adds more job security, adds more cash flow to the company and, and to its shareholders. Beyond Santa Elena, we uh, have a major discovery in the state of Durango. Keep in mind that Santa Elena is in the state of Sonora, so there's quite a bit of a distance between the, the two sites. So that major discovery is called La Jolla. We just did our first NI43-101 resource in January, over 100 million ounces silver equivalent, about 60% of that silver, 30% copper, and 10% on the gold side. So there's great opportunities. We continue to drill there. we got an 80-hole program that's underway, and we're shooting for a double on that resource toward the end of this year, too. We'll see if we're successful or not. The opportunity's there. It's a big system. It's a major discovery. Great opportunity for the company to grow in that direction. I would see Silvercrest in two to three years of being a mid-tier silver-gold producer and bringing, with success, bringing La Jolla online, uh, you know, it's it's five years out. You got to get through all of your studies, but there is a, a conceptual business plan in place right now to look at the growth of the company. What kind of mine life are we looking at? Before the expansion plan, it was six years. The expansion plan at Santa Elena is adding another five years. So you're 10 to 11 years with success and getting 50% to 100% more resources underground. You're probably adding another two to three years on that life. So. I think that Santa Elena, at the end of the day, with metal prices being where they're at, is a major project over the next 10 to 15 years. Well, you're generating revenue through production. Silver is being used as a speculative investment and as an industrial metal. We don't see the need for silver abating at all for the foreseeable future, whether it's the bullion itself or producing public company like yours. I agree with you. I mean, silver, 50% of it's used on the commodities side and 50% is industrial. So there is a balance there depending on global uh, economics and what's going on. But uh, we're very bullish on silver. Any plans beyond what we've discussed for the next two years? We're always looking at other projects. Uh, we're in a unique position right now, Ellis, that we do have a strong cash flow, although some of it's being put towards our expansion plan. We look at two to three acquisitions a month right now. I have an acquisitions team in Mexico. We love Mexico. We don't have any problems with the security there. There's great opportunities. I've previously worked in Nevada. Mexico is like Nevada 30 to 40 years ago. I mean, you can walk over, and we've just shown it. La Jolla a year ago had nothing, and one year later, it's a major discovery. So if I can go out in the field and walk over something and make a major discovery within the last year, you know that there's got to be tremendous opportunity, and we want to capture that opportunity. We don't want to overdo it because we do have a limited amount of people and a limited amount of funds, but you definitely don't want to pass up an opportunity, and we continue to look for those. So if you were to pick up another find or two, like Santa Elena or La Jolla over the next two years, you would not be displeased. No, it's it's all great growth for the company, and we're pretty lean and mean. I mean, our corporate office has eight people in it. We don't book out uh, penthouse suites and spend millions of dollars on our overhead uh, just to keep the upper management happy. So... Lean and mean, we got 
over 240 employees or contractors right now in Mexico, and that's a pretty tight team for the amount of work and accomplishment that we're doing right now. So to find uh, another one or two or bring into our stable another one or two uh, projects just means great growth for the company, uh, moving once again into a mid-tier silver-gold producer, and, and we have the management team and the qualifications to do that. Speaking of your management team, the man with the great vision, one of the founders of the company, CEO Scott Drever, has been a quiet and strong presence. Oh, definitely. And, and he will continue to be. I mean, Scott and I, we bat around business ideas every day. He's a great stable force in moving this company forward. There was actually three of us founders, myself, Scott, and Barney Magnuson of Silvercrest. Beyond that uh, senior management level, there's uh, some great potential just below us. Brent McFarlane, Jed Thomas, uh, Salvador Aguayo. These are all VP positions that are critical to the growth of this company, and they got a lot of great experience and good people. Well, Eric, it's been a pleasure catching up with you. Thanks for joining me on the program, and thanks for the update. I look forward to speaking with you again. Okay, thank you uh, once again for the opportunity, Alice. I've been chatting with Eric Fear, Chief Operating Officer for Silvercrest Mines. Silvercrest trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL and on the OTCQX as STVZF. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. The Ellis Martin Report will be back soon. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and a few choice individuals engage us financially to let you hear all about themselves. Remember, invest at your own risk. Get more of our powerful programming on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.